Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. The Babylonian Talmud is full of stories of demonic encounters, and it also includes many laws that attempt to regulate such encounters. In Demons in the Details, Demonic Discourse and Rabbinic Culture in Late Antique Babylonia, published by University of California Press in 2022, Sarah Ronis takes the reader on a journey across the rabbinic canon, exploring how late antique rabbis imagined, feared, and controlled demons. Sarah Ronis is Associate Professor of Theology at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So to get started, um, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Absolutely. So I have a BA in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies from Brandeis University and a master's in religion from Columbia. And then I got my PhD at Yale in religious studies, focusing on ancient Judaism. So you can see that this project combines a deep dive into classical Jewish texts using the critical frameworks of religious studies, which is exactly what I sought out training in and the kinds of work I like to do. Um, This specific project emerges out of a conversation I had in grad school with my friend Aviva Arad. Um, I really wanted more teaching experience in graduate school than I had available to me. So I decided to teach an extracurricular course on the Babylonian Talmud for the community at the Center for Jewish Life at Yale. Um, And for listeners who maybe are unfamiliar, the Babylonian Talmud is the classic text produced by um, a scholastic elite called the rabbis in Sasanian Babylonia in late antiquity. Um, And it's expansive and multivocal and holistic and foundational to basically all Jewish life from the medieval period onward. Um, It's fascinating and it's dialogical and it's challenging, which makes it just the most wonderful text to study and to teach, um, though I'm admittedly biased. Um, So my class, yeah, yeah. Um, So my class was supposed to be 10 weeks and I knew exactly what I was going to be doing for nine of them. And I was totally stuck on what to do for the 10th class. So I was talking to Aviva and she said, why don't you look at all the weird demon stuff in tractate Psachim? The Talmud is divided up into tractates and Pesachim um, addresses the holiday of Passover. And the 10th chapter has all this weird demon stuff. So I took a look and it was really weird. And I had so many questions. Um, So I looked at medieval commentaries and nothing really addressed the questions that I had. And I looked at modern rabbinic commentaries and I looked at academic scholarship and nothing really addressed the questions that I had. And I thought, huh. Maybe this isn't just a 10th class, but a dissertation project, which served as the starting point for what is now the book. Um, And I've I've always been interested in the weird, the marginal, how marginalized figures are used in the construction of at least nominally coherent communities. And what can be more weird and more marginal to some kinds of thinkings than demons? Um, You know, so they say, I don't know who they is, but they say that research informs your teaching and teaching informs your research. Um, And for me, with this project, that was very, very true. Wow. How fortuitous. (laughs) That's really, (laughs) that's really great. Uh, You start off your book by um, talking a little bit about how demonic discourse showed up in the uh, uh, 2016 uh, U.S. presidential campaign. Where did you see evidence of this demonic discourse? Oh, man. I kind of wanted to say everywhere. Um, I won't, but I want to. <laughs> so I think it's really important to note that it showed up on all sides of the political spectrum. 
There are numerous um, interviews with uh, Republicans and Democrats in the United States in the lead up to the 2016 election, where um, they call the um, the opposing candidates demonic, either explicitly possessed by demons and in need of exorcism or sort of just generally demonic. And they probably, some some of these folks probably mean it um, just as an expression, but expressions are powerful, right? What expression we use tells us something about our own cultural conventions and understanding. But some of them really mean this literally. Um, they mean that candidate is possessed by actual demons and that electing them would be putting Satan in in control of the United States. And at the same time as that's happening, we have this burgeon in popular culture, um, right? Movies about demons, uh, novels about demons. There's there's extended TV shows about where demons play a, a central role, um, thinking about you know, shows like Supernatural. And these are tremendously popular. So this is happening in politics. This is happening in popular culture. Um, and, and there's something that, that tells us something about how demons continue to play this really important discursive role for many people. Right. What does the pop, the, the, the current popularity of demonic discourse in America say about the status of demons in general? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I think here it really depends on the genre. So demons show up in horror as horrific monsters, but they show up in young adult novels and um, and TV shows as misunderstood outsiders who usually fall in love with a human and are, you know, star-crossed Romeo and Juliet kinds of people. And I think that tells us, too, that First of all, you know, we talk about we you often hear people say, oh, well, like back in the day, they believed in demons. And I would argue, actually, demons play just as important a cultural role today as they did, you know, in whatever mythic past people point to. And I would also say that how demons are depicted depends on the genre and the audience and what kinds of understandings they bring and what kinds of questions that they have. And I think that is you know, that is as true in late antiquity as it is today. Right. Speaking of late antiquity, so uh, what was the broader religious culture of ancient Babylonia during the period that you focus on? Yeah. So ancient Babylonia is an incredibly rich and diverse um, place in this period. So the ruling elite is Zoroastrian. Um, and then, uh, right. So, so ancient Babylonia is part of the Sasanian empire in this time period. And the ruling elite is Zoroastrian. Um, the region of Babylonia also includes, um, rabbinic Jews. So Jews who follow this scholastic elite, as well as lots of Jews who seem to have just lived their lives without paying attention very much to the rabbinic elite. Um, it includes a growing community of Christians. In fact, Christians of different theological bents. What what, period, has, what dates are we talking about, roughly, just so listeners have a sense of this? Absolutely. So, so here I'm thinking of the second century to the early seventh century, um, sort of the the traditional end of the Sasanian Empire is with um, is with its conquest in the seventh century. So I think sort of that's, that's where I'm talking about, but again, right. When we're talking about late antiquity, these, these dates are really fuzzy and it's not like, you know, with a, with a new ruling elite, all of a sudden everything changes. Um, and, and I mean, that's really true because, right. So I said, there are a bunch of different kinds of Jews and a bunch of different kinds of Christians, there are Zoroastrians, there are Manichaeans and Mandeans, and there are also all kinds of people who um, who still maintain worship of ancient Babylonian um, ancient Babylonian gods and maintain ancient Babylonian ritual practices. Uh, whether they are combining that with something else or not, right? It's not like 
you know, one empire falls, the other one comes up. And so all of the old practices go away. So this is a really diverse, really um, very cosmopolitan society. And it's also a society where we know many of the places where the rabbis who produced the Talmud lived we're also home to lots of these other groups. So this is a place that isn't, you know, it's it's not, um, they're not geographically disparate. They are all living in the same towns, interacting with each other in a variety of ways. Right. What role did demons play in these, in the broader um, sort of non-Jewish um, culture at the time? Yeah, I think one thing that's important to recognize is that basically everyone in the ancient world, um, at least in sort of the broader Mediterranean and Near East regions, believed in demons. Um, And that is important because there are a couple of groups around who say, wait, maybe demons aren't real. And everyone's like, oh, those guys are weirdos. (laughs) Like, what boy, did they get it wrong? I think it's it's worth noting demons make a lot of sense, right? The world is fundamentally unfair in lots of ways. Humans can't control it in lots of ways. And we can't always see what we, you know, what we are, the, the root cause of our experiences. And so what makes more sense than, well, there must be other beings around that we can't see who are playing a role. Now, of course, in a world where people experience primarily negative things and attribute them to demons, you're then going to develop uh, a world of ritual specialists of various kinds who can offer to help you either cure you of demonic attack, uh, help you prevent demonic attack, help you redefine demonic attack in a variety of ways. So it becomes a way, it becomes a shared culture, but also a, an opportunity for more religious differentiation and competition. Right. And speaking of the the specialists and some of these rituals that were developed in sort of non-Jewish circles, I'm just trying to separate them to the extent possible so that we could then see the contrasts if you know, there are significant contrasts within the rabbinic culture, but um, in terms of the broader society, could you give some examples of specific rituals or behaviors that were um, engaged in in order to ward off demons or or, or, or or deal with these demonic presences? Absolutely. I I don't want to call them non-Jewish because I do think a lot of these rituals are also engaged with by by non-rabbinic Jews. Um, the classic sort of material example from um, from Sasanian Babylonia is the Babylonian incantation bowls, which are uh, bowls that are um, that have incantations written inside them, sort of spiraling out, and they were buried at the corners of people's homes and uh, at their perhaps at their doorpost naming specific demons or general demons to like not come in. Um, So, you know, that's a common material practice, but we have evidence of Jews, Christians, um, and Manichaeans all writing these bowls and using these bowls and clients from different religious communities going to ritual specialists who may or may not be part of their own community Right. Which which makes sense. Right. Most people, if you're going to a doctor, you go to the best doctor. You don't go to the one who maybe doesn't have as good a track record, but goes to church with you. So we see people using ritual specialists across religious lines in some really interesting ways. Right. That is so fascinating. Um, So speaking of the writing of. um. The, the the writing of these um, incantations and uh, specifically the language around the the, the term for demon, um, what was what did the uh, the rabbis use? What terms did they use to refer to demons? And do those terms have the same connotations as the word demon has for us? So I would say the 
hardest part of writing this book was figuring out whether or not to use the term demon. Genuinely. Um, (laughs) Because the rabbis use three terms, and they use them relatively interchangeably. The terms shedim, mazikim, and ruchot, which translate to... The first one is kind of untranslatable, so let's say shedim, and then harmers and spirits. Um, and, And they really do use these terms fairly interchangeably. When I started this project, I tried to do some kind of taxonomy of which one shows up where and swiftly realized that that was just impossible. Um, Now, Christians in the time period also use the term shadim and Zoroastrians in the time period, they're in this very interesting moment in in, um, using the language of the Zoroastrian elite, which was Pahlavi, where they often retain spellings of words in Aramaic, but then they are pronounced very differently, um, right? Language is sort of changing very rapidly. And so the spelling that they use is shedim. So we have this word that's shared across all of these cultures. But part of what I was noticing is that in Zoroastrian texts, they very clearly refer to evil beings who are servants and minions of the evil god. And in Christian texts, they are always evil beings who are servants and minions, sometimes of Satan and sometimes just of generic evil. And in rabbinic texts, they're doing something really different. And so should we call them demons? Well, if you want to talk about comparative you know, comparative religion at all, you have to sort of stumble towards a common set of parameters. But in our modern understanding, we think of demons, you know, every all of those people from the 2016 election who called their opponent demonic weren't thinking and that that meant that they were awesome, right? That's definitely (laughs) what I was for. That's not what they were thinking. They were thinking evil, bad. So is demon the right term or the best term? Well, it points to a shared genealogy linguistically, but I think, you know, it would be just as fair to call these neutral and capricious intermediary beings who the rabbis spend a lot of time thinking about. But that would be a a mouthful to put in all of the sentences that use the word demon in the book. So I do sort of lay out my hesitations in the introduction. But I think using the shared word really does then highlight the choices the rabbis are making about how to construct these entities in ways that are profoundly different from some of the other options that are enacted at the time. Right. And to step back a a moment from the ancient rabbis, um, you explain that some Jews were unhappy with the presence of demons in rabbinic literature. Um, Why was Maimonides, the medieval um, scholar and physician, unhappy with the talk about demons in rabbinic literature? And how did he deal with it? Yeah, Maimonides is is a fascinating case because... Maimonides essentially argues that demons are superstition, they're not real. Um, And now he does that. It's actually not his insight. He's following his teacher, um, Rabbi Isaac Alfasi, well, his father's teacher, um, who started to argue that demons were not normative and not part of the legal system. And I think, so Maimonides is both following that and then sort of with his what today we might call very rational perspective, he really just doesn't see a place for demons in his theology of the world. And what's funny is Maimonides wins in that the demons of the Talmud fall out of favor. They, they sort of fall out of um, Jewish theology for most communities. But that doesn't mean demons fall out of their theology. So in the medieval period, all of a sudden we have these amazing stories in um, in Europe where Jews are telling stories about demons that look a lot like Christian demons and in the Islamic world where Jews are telling lots of stories about demons that look like Muslim demons. So Maimonides 
convinces people that Talmudic demons are wrong or don't aren't real or something of that nature. But he there still is this gap where people fundamentally need to believe in an unseen thing that causes evil to people who don't deserve it. Right. And but how does Maimonides make sense of the fact that the texts of the Talmud themselves are replete with discussions about demons? So that's an excellent question. And I will be honest with you, I'm not a scholar of Maimonides. So I'm sure that there are people out there who have a lot more context for what he was he was doing. But I do think that my you know Maimonides tells us, oh, demons are really just people who don't have what he calls a rational soul, right? They're people who sort of were born wrong. Um, so when the when the Talmud talks about demons, it's really just talking about these people, but it it didn't have that language that we have today. And then, of course, because Maimonides is you know the king of zingers. You know, he says, and, and people who believe that are completely wrong and foolish and nobody who knows anything would really think that <laughs> today. Yeah. Uh, right, right. And and you also mentioned that um, German Jewish scholars of the, quote, scientific study of Judaism in the 19th century also had a problem with the fact that the Talmud was full of demons. Uh, how did they deal with this? Yeah. You know, I think it's worth naming here, and this is true for German scholars, this is also true for early 20th century scholars, there is a long history, a long anti-Semitic history of associating Jews and demons, particularly in Europe. Um, Judaism as demonic, uh, super, right, as part of sort of supersessionist beliefs um, in Christian communities, Jews as demonic, both physically and spiritually, and therefore not deserving of rights or dignity. And so part of what we're seeing in the 19th and 20th century is scholars making the move to argue that demons aren't really Jewish, that they are, um, you know, Heinrich Gretz in 18-something uh, my favorite quote says, you know, they are a foreign corruption and counter to the spirit of Judaism. So in order to argue that Judaism is and that Jews are worthy of participating in the academy, um, that Judaism is worth studying in the academy, that Jews should not, you know, should be afforded human rights and dignity, lots of different scholars begin to argue that actually the demons aren't part of Judaism. They're they're Zoroastrian. They're Persian. They're weird, right? And so they don't belong. And I'm very, very sympathetic to the move that they were making. In fact, all of us who are scholars of Jewish studies with degrees from universities, to some extent, are were able to study Jewish studies in universities because the 19th century Wissenschaft des Judentum, right, the, the scientific study of Judaism community, were successful in making that argument. But I also, str- I, I really struggled with this because I thought about, when I started this project, when you Googled Demons Talmud, the first page of hits on Google were anti-Semitic screeds, modern ones, not, not quotes from the ancient world. But I fundamentally resist the idea that anti-Semites and anti-Semitism get to define the fullness of Judaism, um, both as a scholar and as a Jew. And so thinking seriously, well, what what are these things? Are they Persian? And I was really open to that question when I started. Or are they something else? And if they're something else, what might they be? Those are questions that I felt really compelled to ask. Right, right. Well, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, you note that the British anthropologist E. E. Evans Pritchard um, uh, influenced your his ideas about magic, informed your own approach to demons and the rabbis. How so? Yeah. So I think one 
this is this is not my insight. There are a number of scholars who've done really excellent work on the history of magic and religion. Um, Melissa Aubin and Kim Stratton and um, Randall Stiers have have written wonderful things about this. But for a long time, scholars described as magic things that were dissimilar to Protestant Christianity, right? Magic and superstition were words for what other people who are not as enlightened as us do. And Evans Pritchard shifted the conversation to say, well, communities use the term magic. What do they mean, right? How are they using the term? What can we see about this term from how people within the communities understand magic as part of or separate from religion. And I took that really seriously because I think for many people, you know, oh, you're working on demons, demons and magic. But for the rabbis, they're actually very explicit that demons are not magical, that magic is this forbidden thing that is, you know, that thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, etc. Um, and that demons are a completely different kettle of fish, right? They're just not the same. And you only see that if you take seriously that people get to self-define and define their own religious terms um, for themselves. Right. And you know that there are, um, um, <clears throat> there are two distinct narratives about the origin of demons found in early Jewish writings. What are these two narratives? Yeah, Esther Eschel lays this out in a wonderful dissertation, um, which is only in Hebrew, unfortunately. But it's um, she points out that there are these two Second Temple origin stories of demons. One, and this is the one that probably more listeners will be familiar with, which is that demons are the offspring or in some way related to fallen angels, um, that angels come to earth at some point and sin with human women, uh, riffing on Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and that therefore demons are this accident of creation, right? That they are evil, they're not part of the plan, and they're the product of sin. But there is this other origin story in Second Temple texts, not as popular, I'll, I'll admit, but it exists, that demons are actually an intentional part of God's creation, that they're part of the plan. And what's particularly interesting is the rabbis see themselves as heirs to Second Temple Jewish traditions, as do other groups, but the rabbis are one of those. And they're faced with these two different origin stories. And overwhelmingly, they, they choose to think about demons as part of God's original plan. Why and, do and you, that, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and that makes sense, uh, right? If you believe in an omnipotent, omniscient God, then accidents are a problem, right? Things that God didn't plan are a problem, right? God should be planning everything. And if God, right, and then, so, okay, so God, everything's part of God's plan. I'm into it. Now we have a problem because God created demons. And what does that do about the nature of demons and the nature of God, right? Does God create evil in the world or is something else happening? And for the rabbis, they, they did not go in the, well, God just created evil in the world. That, that's not the direction they took. They took right. the something else must be happening route. Right, because either either one of those options are theologically problematic. If God intentionally creates evil, then that says something about the nature of God and what is he really anti-evil or whatever. And if you say, no, God didn't create them, they happened on their own, then that says something about the limitations of God, that he wasn't able to fully control the experiment that he set in motion. Yes. You know, when I tell people my, um, my, the department in which I'm housed, which is a department of theology, um, but I work on the Talmud, people often say, but Jews don't do theology. Um, which is a very pernicious belief and is certainly true if we think theology means understanding the Christian God. But it's really hard to read these texts and not see all of the theological thinking 
that is happening in terms of who and what is God and how does that being relate to the universe everywhere? Uh, very briefly, not to get too sidetracked, but I'm really curious about what you just mentioned, this idea that this sort of popular myth that um, Jews or Judaism doesn't really have a theology. And I wonder if you think that that's related to or outgrowth of the uh, quote scientific study of, of of Judaism movement in the 19th century that was trying to present a very rationalist understanding of Judaism, and that therefore they sort of intentionally kind of shunted to the side um, uh, theological teachings within Judaism, and then as a result of that, both Jews and non-Jews often say, "Well, Judaism doesn't really have a theology." So I do think it emerges out of a 19th century context, but I actually think it comes from the other direction, which is to say that theology programs in Europe were about Christianity exclusively. Jews were not allowed to teach in those programs, um, and in many places were not allowed to be students in those programs. And so, and again, right, if by, theo if by theology we mean the study of the Christian God, then certainly I would argue that the, the Talmud and Jews do not have a theology. But I think in the 20th century, we have recognized that lots of groups have gods, um, have understandings of a divine being, and lots of groups have no understanding of a divine being. And both of those, both of those iterations, that belief shapes a lot of their life and how they see the world. And so I would argue you can certainly talk about a Jewish theology. You can also talk about an atheist theology. You can talk about, you know, any of those theologies. And I certainly think if you, if you are paying attention, you see an awful lot of theological thinking in classical rabbinic texts. All right. All right. Okay. Back to the demons. So, and the details. Um, so, uh, uh, how did the rabbis in the Talmud classify demons? And specifically, uh, were demons thought of as the same or different from angels? Yeah, demons are absolutely different from angels for the rabbis. And the, the locus classicus of this is a text in Tractate Chagiga, where they literally lay out a taxonomy, um, where, you know, Angel demons are like angels in these ways and unlike angels in these ways. Demons are like humans in these ways and unlike humans in these ways. And some of the ways that demons are similar to angels in that they have wings and they can fly and they can know the future um, or maybe hear the future up in heaven because they can fly and then tell people. Um, but they're also like humans in that they eat and they drink um, they have sex and they die. And so they are genuinely, right, in these texts, a separate species. God, they are a species created separately as such by God. Now, none of that tells us anything about their moral status, right? That sort of, okay, you are this species and here are your characteristics doesn't tell us whether you are good or bad. But I think the fact that the text in Tractate Chagiga doesn't care, or that's not what it's invested in in that place, tells us something, right? That, that the moral status of demons isn't the only thing the rabbis are worried about. Demons are actually doing all kinds of work for the rabbis that has, that, that some of which is related to their moral status and some of which is doing entirely different things. Uh, and according to the rabbis, were there specific places that were dangerous because of demons or specific actions that could bring about demonic punishments? So many. So, <laughs> so many. Um, so the rabbis, I would argue, really use demons both to create a map of the world and how you should move through it, um, create a set of you know, actions that you should or should not take, and a set of times that are more or less dangerous. So just to give you some examples that are particularly charming to my students, um, demons are likely to be found in 
outhouses, right? So you want to be really careful in outhouses. But you also want to be careful in near some kinds of, of um, foliage, right? Trees, uh, shadows of trees, depending on the time and how big the shadow is, might be the home of a demon. Um, particular kinds of foods and particular kinds of foods that are consumed in particular ways. So classic example here, the rabbis believe that drinking um, beverages in even numbers, so having two glasses of wine with dinner, is in some way provocative of demons. So clearly the solution, as my students often joke, is to have that third cup of wine. <laughs> right. It could save your life. <laughs> it could. It could. I mean, better to only have one. But if you, you know, forget yourself and you have a second, make sure you have a third. Um, but never a fourth. Only Passover. On Passover, the first night alone, you're allowed to have a fourth cup of wine. But there's an explicit exception, according to the rabbis, built into Exodus for that. Um, right, which I think actually tells us something, right? Demons are this totalizing system that fits for them, could fit relatively uneasily into some other of their traditions. And they figure out ways that it doesn't, right? They figure out ways that it doesn't. Now, one thing I think is really important to name, both about the kinds of places where demons are more common, um, the kinds of times when demons are more common, nights, particular days, um, particular seasons in the calendar, and foods and ways of eating where demons are more easily provoked, is that very little of that is rooted in biblical texts. Very little of it. If, I mean, very little of it. And I think that that tells us two things, right? One is that in order to successfully navigate a world filled with demons, you have to have a lot of not just biblical knowledge, but rabbinic knowledge, right? That there is this way of knowing and engaging in the world and epistemology, which is rabbinic, which absolutely sees itself and is related to the biblical text, but it's not enough to read the Bible. You have to learn from rabbis to navigate the world safely. And then the second thing is, if you know all that rabbinic knowledge, right, if you never go into an outhouse in a way that is provocative and you only drink even numbers of drinks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you're fundamentally safe from demons, right? Because demons only attack when provoked. So, if you don't provoke them because you have all of this rabbinic knowledge, you're safe, which essentially turns, right? It, it turns demons into rabbinic enforcers, but it also then, I mean, we can imagine, right? If somebody is going for a walk and you know, based on the time of day, which shadows are going to be particularly demonically dangerous. We can imagine somebody walking down particularly a rural road who looks very strange to others, jumping around this particular shadow, constantly hyper aware and hyper alert, right? This, this whole other way of moving through the world, which fundamentally then shapes a rabbinic body, right? A rabbinic way of moving through the world as a person with a body that relates to time, space, and food. Right. And um, do the rabbis say it, what could happen if, uh, like, like concretely, you know, what could happen if a person forgets or neglects, you know, these stipulations to, quote unquote, stay safe from demons? Like, what could demons really do? I mean, how bad could it get, you know? So there are several stories in the Talmud where demons end up killing people. Um, right, where demons actually end up killing people. Uh, interestingly enough, in some of the later manuscripts, oftentimes, um, you know, a scribe adds the sentence, but, you know, but the rabbis prayed for this person and they were saved. Um, the older manuscripts usually don't have that. But for the most part, it's folks who did not know or ignored rabbinic teaching. Um, and so there, there is, right, there's this sort of carrot stick model the carrot is you get to move through the world safely and not just safely, but the, if the if demons are rabbinic enforcers and you're a rabbi, then demons are your allies, right? Demons are your people. But the stick is, but if you do it wrong, you could die. 
and that's a big stick. I'm not going to, I don't want to under. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty terrifying. Um, uh, so how do demons show up in rabbinic legal discussions? Yeah. You know, this is, so I kind of do want to say, well, they're everywhere, right? They are literally everywhere. And even today there are Jewish practices rooted in rabbinic discussions of demons that, um, Many folks today, not all, but many folks know those practices and don't know the origins. Um, but these are still lots of practices that are quite live. So like going what? back to, could, could you oh. give us some examples? Because I, I, I don't I, I remember hearing about the the number of cups, uh, you know, the water to drink or what Absolutely. have you. Absolutely. So, so the, the classic example that comes to mind, so on the first night of Passover, um, um, and on the first two nights of Passover outside the land of Israel, the um, the rabbinic custom is to drink four cups of wine ritually. And this is found in the Mishnah, which is a second century rabbinic text that the Talmud then comments on. And if you know anything about Talmudic thinking, you might expect their comments to be things like, OK, so you have to have four cups of wine. Well, how full does a cup have to be? What kind of cup, you know, what, what counts as wine? Can I have white or does it have to be red? Can I water it down? Does grape juice count? Right. We might expect that kind of detailed question. But instead, what we get is literally the first thing the rabbis are worried about in the Talmud. Well, how could how could we have this thing when we know four cups of wine is really dangerous and the rabbis would never institute something that would be life-threatening, right? And the ultimate conclusion is that, well, the first night of Passover has an exception because in the book of Exodus, it is referred to as Leil Shimurim, a night of watching. And who's watching what? God's watching the demons, so you're safe. That night and that night alone, you can have four cups of wine. Now, here are two ways that that still shows up in our world. So traditional Jewish communities have the custom of not saying the Shema before bed on the first night of Passover. Um, right. So the ritual hero Israel, the Lord, our God is one, is traditionally said before bed um, in in um, traditional Jewish practice. And on the first night of Passover, you're not supposed to say it. Why? Because it is a night of watching of the demons. Now, what does that mean about where this practice originally comes from and what some of its original valences might have been? Right. I'd also argue there is a. Um... Wait, no, I lost it. Totally lost it. Are, are you uh, thinking about the 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 un, not locking the door the first night of Passover? So I wasn't thinking I wasn't thinking about that. But again, right, there are all of these practices which we still have today. Um, or that many people still have today, but which are disconnected from um, from demonic discourse. Uh, and I think if you ask most folks, why don't you say the Shema on the first night of Passover before bed, they wouldn't say, well, because what it is, is, is a formula to ward off demons while I sleep, and God is warding off demons for me tonight. That's not the answer most folks would give. Right. Yes, and I... to be fair, it doesn't mean that for people today. Right. You know, thinking about how religion um, and religious practice changes, it has a completely different valence for most people today. You know, both every other night and the night of Passover. But that doesn't erase its origins in demonic discourse. Absolutely. Um, how is the rabbi's approach to demons different from that of their Zoroastrian legal counterparts? Yeah. So I think when I started this project, there's this move in the last 20 years towards Irano Talmudica, which is to look at um, to look at the Talmud really in it, in connection to its Zoroastrian context for a wide variety of people of reasons. People had been doing comparative work between the Talmud and Roman and Greek um, society for a long time, probably having a lot to do both with the study of classics being far more developed and having better access to Greek and Latin. 
Um, and in the last 20 years, really um, spearheaded by um, Isaiah Gaffney and Yaakov Elman, there was a real turn to say, okay, now what can we learn from the actual context in which the rabbis live? <laughs> um, which I think, you know, is a very reasonable next step. And I really assumed when I started this project that it was going to be part of that project of saying, what are the similarities between the rabbis and Zoroastrians? And there is a, a very important similarity when it comes to demons, which is that both the rabbis and Zoroastrians, um, or at least the Zoroastrian legal elite, choose to deal with demons through law. Right. They're not just interesting stories, as we saw in Second Temple, um, in Second Temple Jewish texts or as we find in contemporary Christian texts. They're really dealing with demons by not just legislating, but then having discussions about the law. And that's really similar. But the difference becomes one of and I think, again, this goes back to theology where for Zoroastrians, demons are evil. They are just evil. And all you want to do is avoid them as much as possible, kill them where possible by doing good deeds. They are unredeemable. And for the rabbis, right, we've already talked about the fact that they can't be evil. So demons are something else. And what's particularly interesting then is for the for Zoroastrians, the law helps people avoid demons. Rabbinic law, I would argue, actually paints demons as subject to the rabbis, right? If the rabbis tell us we know demons and they won't attack you if X or Y, if you're jumping, you know, if you are avoiding this shadow at this time of day, and if you're having this number of cups of wine, well, that also assumes that demons know rabbinic law right? That they're sort of mutually constituting each other. And in fact, we see at least one story in the Talmud where that's exactly what happens, where a demon attacks a barrel of wine that gets put in the wrong place. Basically, a demon who is invisible is sitting there and some poor porters put a bottle, uh, a barrel of wine on his ear and he destroys the barrel, which totally checks out, right? I would not be happy either. But he gets called to the rabbinic court because of destruction of property. Yes, <laughs> that he's a citizen, right? That he's a member of the rabbinic community who can be called to court. And the, the rabbis require him to pay the cost of the barrel, right? To, to financial reparations. And on the day when he's supposed to pay the reparations, he doesn't show up. And so they start to excommunicate him. And, you can only excommunicate people who are part of your community, right? I mean, that's literally in the name. And so he shows up late and he's like, I'm so sorry, but you know, you rabbis have said I could only take money from particular places where it's been lost. So I, it took me a little bit longer to get the money to pay back for the barrel, which suggests they see him as part of the community. He also sees himself as part of the community and follows rabbinic law. And that's a really different thing than saying, well, demons are out there and uncontrollable and all we can do is our best versus demons are part of our community. They follow our rules. They're part of our epistemology. And so you need to also be part of our epistemology and not just be protected, but to work with them. That's a remarkable story <laughs> on, on so many levels. Um, well, I do just want to say one important thing about that story is the word that is used for demons there is actually the word mazik, harmer. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to create a taxonomy where where they use this word, they're neutral, and when they use that word, they're positive, this story is the sort of moment where that really falls apart. Right, right, right. Um, um, speaking of. Um, sort of cultural comparisons, um, how did the views of the rabbis regarding demons differ from those of older Sumerian and Akkadian understandings of demons? Yeah, you know, and, and here again, I think I'll actually start with some similarities, which is to say that ancient Mesopotamian religious traditions saw demons as servants of the gods. And, you know, if you... If the gods were, 
or if a particular god tasked a demon with something that would, uh, you know, you would experience as bad, you thought of demons as evil, or at least that demon. And if uh, they, you know, had tasked a demon to do a thing that you would experience as good, they thought it was, you know, oh, that's a good demon. And in fact, we have a number of incantations which say things like, get back, evil demon, come closer, good demon. And we have ancient stories um, which in which demons in ancient Mesopotamian texts say things like, I don't know good and evil. I just do what the gods tell me. So they are these really neutral figures in many right part of the divine community, much like in rabbinic texts where they're part of the rabbinic community. They're largely neutral unless you aren't following rabbinic law. Now, the flip side is, and I think this is an important flip side, that ancient Mesopotamian religions were polytheistic. And so you have some gods who are working with some demons versus other gods who are working with other demons. And that allows for all kinds of conflicts with demons that for the rabbis who are profoundly committed to monotheism, even though, as we've seen, it's a messy, it's a messy monotheism, um, that they, they are they are not going to ever say, well, it's because there were more gods, right? That that doesn't work for them. And so in some ways, then they have to tie demons even more closely to their community because they can't just say, oh, well, that demon was serving a bad god, a, a capricious god, a god who was just thinking about themselves. That, that doesn't work for them. Right. And given how much... Um how many demons show up in the Talmud? Um, does the Talmud, um, the, the rabbis in the Talmud also discuss uh, uh, some form of exorcism, a ritual to remove a demon from, you know, who's uh, possessing a person? Yeah. You know, this is one of the things that I find most interesting about, about the Talmud, because if you look at modern movies and pop culture, you would expect exorcisms to be everywhere. And if you're looking at ancient Christian texts, you're going to see exorcisms everywhere. And in rabbinic texts, there is, in, well, in the Talmud, there is one exorcism. There is only one exorcism and it's fake. It's not a real exorcism. Um, so, here, I think... What does it mean that it's not a real exorcism? <laughs> yes. So so this story is in Tractate Meila, and it tells the story of a Roman emperor who, uh, sort of a generic Roman emperor who signs an oppressive decree against the Jews. And as the Jews are walking towards, these rabbis are, are walking to Rome to try to, to try to get him to change his mind, they meet a figure named Ben Tamalion, um, who seems to be some kind of demon. And he says, oh, where are you going? And then he's like, okay, I got this. And he runs ahead, right? Remember, demons can sort of travel in the blink of an eye really fast because of those wings. So he jumps ahead and possesses the daughter of the Roman emperor. And by the time the rabbis get there by foot, the Roman emperor is at such a wit's end that he says, whoever can cure my daughter will can take anything they want from my treasury. And so the rabbis literally perform an exorcism, right? It's a performance in the sense here of acting. Like it's not real. He's, she's right. They've already colluded with Mentamalion about what was going to happen. And the daughter of the emperor is, is cured and they go into the king's treasury and they take the decree against the Jews and they rip it up. Right. That's the that's the story. And it's a wonderful story. But the fact that it's low and there's a lot of work that's actually been done on this story. Richard Kalman has a whole chapter in Migrating Tales about parallels between this story and Christian stories of Bartho of St. Bartholomew. Um, really great work. And this story takes place in Rome, where there is a belief in possession and exorcism. Right. Even for the rabbis who tell the story in Babylonia, the one time they tell a story about exorcism, it's first of all, it's fake and it's in Rome um, where those practices were more common. And I think here this this takes us to anthropology, because in order for somebody to be possessed. Right. And here we're thinking sort of the classic like 
a demon sort of hijacks your body, you need to have a body that is separate from other parts of you that can be hijacked, right? And, and here, the analogy I use in the book is like a car, right? There has to be a driver and a car, uh, right? We could call that driver the soul, the self, the spirit, something, but there has to be that and a body. And for the rabbis in this period, um, specifically the rabbis of the Talmud, those two things aren't quite as separate as you might think. Um, they are deeply interconnected in ways that can't be teased apart. And so you, you know, think here instead perhaps of that car from the kids' movies Cars, right? Like how could you hijack a car that is the body and the self at the same time? There's no room for hijacking. And so they do talk about what to do if a demon attacks you, meaning from the outside, presumably because you didn't listen to the rabbis. Though every once in a while you can tell they're like, but maybe if you do everything right, they still will attack you because, you know, they know the world around them isn't actually as controllable as they want it to be. But they can't imagine a world where a demon could take you over because that just doesn't fit with their anthropology. And in fact, they're far, far more often in the Talmud, you have demons who not attack and possess people, but are rabbis themselves. Right. So the classic demon, right, the one who gives the rabbis lots of insights about how to, you know, deal productively with demons is a fellow by the name of Rabbi Joseph the demon, who shows up in numerous places in the Talmud, sometimes offering demonic insights and at least once just, you know, teaching Torah on Saturday. Right. As as people sort of gather to study Torah on the on the Jewish Sabbath, somebody's got to teach you. And apparently, you know. Sometimes it was Rabbi Joseph the demon. <laughs> wow. Just wow. Um, um, so your book really tries to add back the discourse on demonology into rabbinic studies. Um, what does this move do in terms of our understanding of the rabbis and their culture? Yeah, you know, I think it does. I think it does a number of things. So I think it, again, offers us some insight into rabbinic theology, um, but how they dealt with a world where bad things happened without explanation always. Um, I think it allows us to better reconstruct rabbinic law, right? If we take out all of the demon stuff, you're missing huge amounts of the conversation. And I think we have to take seriously Right For people who think, and I happen to be one of them, that the rabbis are fascinating and brilliant and, and troubling, I'm not suggesting otherwise, to assume they are fascinating and brilliant and troubling on all kinds of issues, but then not demons, just seems intellectually inconsistent. And I would also argue that I think the, the study of demons really models how do we respond to things that are weird to things that don't fit our expectations, right? What does it mean, right? So, you know, we've seen when it comes to demons, we've saw Maimonides approach them one way. 19th century German scholars say like, oh, it's not really Jewish, right? Oh, it's not, right? Maimonides, it's not rational. Them, it's not Jewish. What does it mean to say, okay, there are weird things that we weren't expecting, but maybe they are supposed to be there. Maybe they are part of this classical tradition. And now we need to think seriously about what that means for how we understand the classical tradition. Right. Okay. Last question. Um, um, You write that, quote, demons are real. What do you mean by that? Yes. So, you know, whenever I give, um, whenever I give sort of book talks about this, somebody always asks me whether or not I personally believe in demons. Um, And I do just want to say that every time I give book talks, people come up to me afterwards sharing their own experiences with demons. Um, And this is true within religious communities of different religions. This is true within communities that are not affiliated with a religion. So demons are clearly real for a lot of people. That's not quite what I mean when I say demons are real. What I mean is that demons are real to the rabbis. Right. The rabbis really believe in demons. They're not a euphemism for 
germs, right? They're not a, right. Germs aren't going to get you if you have two cups of wine instead of three. They're not a euphemism for drunkenness, because again, a solution to four cups of wine would be just to have a fifth. They are, they're not an allegory for something. They are a real category of being for the rabbis. And they're doing real work, both for the rabbis and for communities who see their practices and ways of life as rooted in these classic texts, whether or not they themselves believe in demons. Right? We have to take them seriously because they are real as a force in shaping our world through demonic discourse, meaning people's discourse about demons. Right. Not the discourse of demons about people. <laughs> no, again, you know, you got your Rabbi Joseph the demon, you have demons who are overhearing things in heaven and then telling other people about them. So at least for the rabbis, perhaps perhaps it goes both ways. <laughs> okay. We're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Anytime. Thank you. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.